Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we come in Jesus' name, the the name that we celebrate as the one who poured out his blood and his body for us. We come asking for you to speak through your word. God, teach us who you are and and give us the joy that we we crave, the joy in Christ that is deeply rooted in knowledge, in truth, and well up in our spirit, the joy of our salvation. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There were five golden tickets. There were five golden tickets that day that were put inside of the Wonka bar. And of course, the whole land was scouring over, trying to find these tickets to get into Willy Wonka's factory and tour what they would see. And and finally, when the fifth ticket was found, every kid's heart was saddened. Until they found out that that fifth ticket was a fraud and there was one more ticket that was really out there. And then, of course, Charlie finds it and gets to tour the factory and they bring and and the scene is grand as they walk up to the, the mystical factory of Willy Wonka where no one has ever entered in, in many, many years. And they present to Mr. Wonka the golden ticket. And they redeem that ticket for an entry into the factory and the joys that would would follow. When we think about redemption, that is a, a ticket or something that purchases the right or the ability to do something. Now, this term goes much further back than Willy Wonka. It goes back and and. Much of its roots are in, uh, in the ancient slave trade. And if you're not familiar with how that worked, uh, it was uh, very much different than what probably most Americans are used to from American slavery. But what they would do, what some, some things were similar. And one of them we saw in our reading in Genesis when, when we have uh, Joseph, who is taken by his brothers, put in a pit, and then sold to a group of people who would take him and put him on a slave trade against his will taken and brought to be redeemed by someone else. And for the right price, someone would buy the right to take this human being and use them in whatever way that they chose. That was where this word redemption got its beginning. And so as we read through Exodus and you see the word redeemed, the mindset that that we need to think about is I am giving something for the right to do something else. And if I pay the right amount of money, I can take as Potiphar, I can take Joseph and put him into my service. If I give Mr. Wonka the right ticket, I have the right to enter into the factory. Redemption is a purchasing of something for, or a giving of something for the right to do something else. Now, as we think about that, I invite you in your Bible to open up to Exodus chapter 1. 
We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 1 this morning. And as we do that, uh, I'd like to show you a graphic of what we're studying this year as we walk through the Bible. Uh, and this is our, our picture of the year. Uh, and, and this is uh, the Bible in a nutshell, if you will. Uh, and I don't mean that disrespectfully in any way. There is so much depth that, uh, that we can't comprehend. But as we read through the Bible, we see creation. We see the fall of man, and then we see much of the rest of Scripture speaking of redemption and how, how mankind is redeemed to live in, ultimately, God's kingdom. God's kingdom. And that is in the here and now, and that is in, as Wayne's saying, when Jesus comes back and establishes that in its fullness. We look back to Genesis and we see... The fall, and we see this story of Joseph, and Joseph being, uh, being unfortunately sent into the hands of traitors who bring him into uh, the, the house of Potiphar. He gets lied about, he gets sent into prison, and Joseph spends about 13 or three years in prison there, and, and, and there's, there's trouble. He's, uh, he's treated like a prisoner, and then... After the third year, after uh, the dream of, of the cupbearer, he's raised to power uh, through a dream of Pharaoh who, who has a dream. And Joseph interprets it and, uh, by God's spirit, interprets that dream. And Joseph is elevated into, into a position of authority. And God is using and, and it's clear that we see God's providence in his hand moving each instance Bringing Joseph where he needs to be. And it cost Joseph a lot. And it was very painful. For him to be where he was. 13 years of prison. But then God brings him to a place of prominence. And, and he ends uh, this section uh, of, of Genesis. In the 50th chapter of Genesis. And says. What you've done for evil. I have done for good. And God intended this to be. That I might save a people. And we see God's hand of providence. Let me read to you a quote uh, from uh, on the ancient world. And give us a, again an idea of how this story of slavery and redemption works its way from the slave block into, uh, into what we talk about today with being redeemed from the people of Egypt. In the ancient world, men, women, and children were routinely bought and sold. They were owned, traded, purchased, and put to work. They could be handed down from one generation to another. You might be born into slavery. You might, be, you might go into debt and legally fall into slavery. You might be captured by an army and taken as a slave as part of the booty. The victorious, the victorious spoils of war. But... If you became a slave in the days of the Bible, there were only two ways you could ever be freed from your slavery. In just a few rare cases, a condemned man might have enough money to pay the price and purchase his redemption. That purchase price was called the redemption price. Far more often, it would be this. You were in slavery, someone took pity upon you, and they paid the redemption price. Then they, having purchased you, having paid the price, if they chose to, could make 
You work from the, for them as a slave, or in rare occasions, they would set you free. I hope that gives you a picture. Because as we see the story of Joseph being bought and sold, and then him coming to power, part of the, the rest of God's providence is that his whole family comes to Egypt. And Egypt then puts his family in, in, in a great place of kindness in their own land. And provides for them. And it's a, a great partnership. But over time, the leaders who knew Joseph forget about Joseph. And time goes by and we're talking 400 years. Which is a lot longer than this country's even been in existence. And they began to be afraid. And they put the entire family of Joseph, who's now become a nation, into slavery. And so now we have this... this Picture of slavery, and it is a nasty, brutal, ungodly, terrible thing that they do to the people of Israel. We pick that up in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6 through 13, if you will. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Does that sound familiar? They were fruitful and they multiplied. And he said to his people, I'm sorry, verse 8. And there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and they are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out. They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You see fear ruling over the Pharaoh with a hypothetical war. But he's got a real solution for it. Therefore, they set taskmasters over the people to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. And they, uh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. God has a plan. And in this portion, it is a hard part of God's plan. It's a difficult time. We studied this last fall uh, that as the great... Slavery was there and great oppression upon God's people. They cry out to him. And God hears and God sends one man. What's his name? Moses from out of the wilderness to come and be a voice for God unto Pharaoh. So, guys, I'm backing up this story to get to some some questions that I have for you at the end. So I hope this is a review or a help for you. But get ready. There's some, some tough things at the end we're going we're gonna to deal with. God sends Moses to come. And, and what was the question? Do you remember the question that the, the ten plagues that are sent were answering? Pharaoh asked a question when he talked with Moses. What was that question? Do you remember? We talked about it last fall. Colby? Yes. Who is God? And we find it if you're looking in Exodus 5 two. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? 
I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is God? And God demonstrated by his power over all of the other Egyptian gods. And each plague had a purpose and a meaning. And the locusts and the frogs and the light and all of the gods that they believed were behind the sun. God brought his own power over those to demonstrate and answer that question of who is God. And we get to the final plague. I'm not going to go into detail on the plagues. We did that last year. But we get to the final plague and some very interesting uh, drama takes place. Very interesting drama takes place. We'll pick it up in chapter 12, verse 5. Right before their final rescue, he gives this mandate to the people of Israel. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? Okay, watch this. uh, Exodus 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. He goes, go get a lamb. Your lamb needs to be one that's without blemish, a male, about a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. When they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Now remember, blood on The verticals, the horizontals, and the verticals of the house. Pointing us, of course, forward to the cross and the blood that would be on the vertical and the horizontal at the cross. But he says this uh, in verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat. So why on the night that God has done these incredible miracles? He's turned the Nile River to blood. He's brought a a gajillion frogs out. Uh, He's brought the storm and the hail. All of these magnificent things. The final, almost the apex of what's going on here. What could it be? What could God do that is so great that it tops all of those nine previous plagues? And he says, go get a lamb. I'll show you what I'm going to do. Go get a lamb. And it makes me think, how is this lamb and what they're going to do so much greater than the magnificent miracles that God has already proved? And I'll I'll tell you, you ask any Christian about the lamb. The Lamb of God and what he's done for them. And you'll probably get some heads nodding and some stories to say God has changed me through the Lamb. And that's what he does here. He takes the Lamb and he brings them. We continue. There was something, something very, very bad for many families coming that night. Exodus 12, you see it? Verse 12. For I will pass through Egypt that night and I will strike all of the firstborn. Remember that word. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
This day will be a memorial for you, and you shall keep a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep as a feast. And then, picture it, church, picture it. After thousands of nights of hurting, of pain, of being abused, of being treated shrewdly and in ungodly ways, after thousands of nights of that happening, beatings, God showed a glimpse of his hatred for sin and injustice. And he sent his destroyer through house after house after house. And any house not covered in the blood, the firstborn would be taken away from them. And we think, I mean, how many households in Egypt are we talking about? And these are the lives that are shed. All of the firstborn are taken away. And you might think, well, why the firstborn? I said, remember that word. Why the firstborn? What, what's going on with this firstborn idea? We'll get to that in just a moment. But let me also share with you God's second glimpse against his hatred for sin and for injustice. It happened 1,500 years later. But in Mark chapter 15, we read this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until about the ninth hour. Now, what was the ninth plague, everybody? It was, it was darkness. Thank you, Mary. And what was the tenth plague? The death of the firstborn. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this way, in this way he breathed his last, he turned and he said, truly this man was the son of God. The lamb that was slain for us after darkness. And you think, why after darkness? And, and, and I have to think in my own mind and, and wrestle with these things. And you say, well, what makes the light sh shine the brightest? It's when you put it in the darkest of, of places. And did not Jesus' love and God's justice Shine the brightest in that moment. Now, I told you I've given you background. What happens after in the Passover uh, narrative is, is quite interesting. How many of you know what God commands right after this statement in Exodus 13? Have you, have you studied it? 
right after telling them what's going to happen with the Passover, the Lord gives this command. Exodus 13. He gives two commands, actually. We'll read them in verse, verses 1 through 3. We'll take a look at the first one. Exodus 13, 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Set apart. Consecrate's fancy word. It means set apart. Identify. Set these apart for me, all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both men and of beast, is mine. So right after this Passover, when the Lord kills the firstborn of all of Egypt, he gives this command to Israel. He says, set aside the firstborn for me. Do you ever think about that? Why? Why would he do that? What is God showing or doing when he says, whatever opens the womb first is, is mine? Fast forward a little bit to Exodus 13. We're given a little bit more, dis- more description. Right. Have you ever wondered why? Why does it matter? Why does God require the firstborn? Watch. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your fathers, shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. This is more explanation. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn that is a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn that is among you, you shall redeem. And when the time comes, your son shall ask you, what does this mean? And and I'm one of those. What what does this mean? Why are you doing this? You shall say to them, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all of the males that first opened the womb. But the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Of mankind, I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand and your frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Here's a question. If God spent all of that effort and time to redeem a people out of Israel, I mean, I'm sorry, out of Egypt, and he saved all of their lives, why was he then requiring their life? Why would he require bloodshed of every firstborn animal and require even more blood for every firstborn human? Of course, not killing the humans. Why? Why would he go through this effort? I thought God was about saving life, not taking it. Right? Well, it's a good question. I'm glad y'all asked. Y'all were thinking just like I was, because I was asking the same question. Why? Why does God require the firstborn? Now, one of my sons just texted me and said, wasn't Jesus the firstborn? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he was. He certainly was. God even required his firstborn. And the answer should should bring something. 
When God redeems somebody, there is, a, there is a price that must be paid for that redemption. Are y'all tracking with me now? The people of Israel had what relationship to the Egyptians? They were what? They were slaves. And the purchase price that was paid to redeem them was, was something. And God is saying... As, as people are brought to him, and as he's redeemed people, there is a price. And so I have a question for you. I asked several people this question as I was preparing for this message. And, and here's my tough question. Here's my tough question. Do God's people owe God something? Do God's people Owe God something. I see heads shaking both ways. Nods and shakes. Hmm. All right, let me make it personal. Do you owe God something? Do you owe God something? God had done the, the greatest rescue project that had ever been seen. He delivered his people out of the hands of a, a ruthless despot. And out of a culture of, of hatred and scorn. God had delivered them. And one of the first thing that God does is he requires something of his people. Several people ask this question and say, well, do we owe God? I'm not sure. Didn't Jesus pay all of our, our debt? Belinda, we have a song about that, right? A song, it was, we sing it in this church. It goes, Jesus paid it all. How can we owe God something if Jesus paid it all, right? So the question begs itself, oh, well, Jesus has, has paid it all, right? So I can't owe God anything if Jesus has paid everything that I owe to God, right? 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 Yeah? No? But... But that's not the whole verse of the song. At least that's not the intent. Because there's a next part of that song. And at least this is, this is one author's opinion. What's the rest of that song? All to him I owe. Right? That's why we need context. Because you can take a little snippet. So do we owe? This, this hymn writer certainly thought we owed something to God. Didn't he? Do you, do you owe God something? Let's look at some scripture. Look in Galatians chapter 5. This is interesting. I'll read it. Uh, Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
Now, if we were freed, let's take, go back to our slave analogy that we've been talking about. If someone pays the price to redeem you, in that analogy, what happens to the, to the person who is purchased? Do they go free? Well, not in this culture they, they didn't. They were indebted to the person who had redeemed them or paid their price. Well, we don't live in ancient Israel, right? So what about today? We would, most people in this room would agree that Jesus paid a price. We celebrated a Christian with the, the juice and the bread this morning. Jesus paid a price and he purchased us. And the apostle Paul himself said, you were called to freedom, brothers. We are free in Christ. So the next question that I ask you again, I'm asking you some tough ones today. All right. Well, then what is Christian freedom? If you are called to freedom, what does that freedom look like? If you ask our culture today, freedom is the ability to do Whatever you want, right? I'm free. Do whatever I want. Not everybody believes that, but an overwhelming number of people do. Vast majority. Well, freedom means I can do whatever I want. But then when we start asking harder questions, like, well, that doesn't mean you're free to go take somebody else's life, right? Oh, no, 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 no. I can't do that. I can't harm people. Okay, so there there are bounds then to your freedom. Well, I guess if you put it that way, yeah. So Christian then, are there bounds to Christian freedom? Or is it the ability to do whatever we want to do? Let me give you another verse. Romans 6.22 But now that you have been set free, there it is again, from sin, you've been redeemed. You have become what? Slaves to God. So the idea of transferring ownership, maybe it is a a New Testament idea. Maybe so. Because what the Apostle Paul gives us here is that we've been brought from one master. You've been set free from one master and brought to a new master. I know our culture, when we see the word slave, we all cringe because we think of, of a, a tragic period of our history. But, but that, that's, that, this was way before that. This was moving into the idea of a submission and a servitude and an indebtedness to a master. You have become a slave to God, Christian, if you've been set free. And as Jesus said, whoever the son sets free, he is free What? He is free indeed. Yes, indeed. He is truly free. You, Christian, have become a slave of God. And let me finish that verse. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. And in its end, it's a process. And in its end, what does it lead to? Eternal life. 
So Christian, may I ask you a question once again? Do you owe God something? The price has been paid for you, Christian. Do you owe God something? Our lives. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I think you need both of those together if you're going to be faithful. Let me read you one more verse. I was talking with a a young man last night. I thought of this, as I'm working through this, I thought of this verse, had it noted down. And he said, what about this verse? Maybe this would fit as a good answer. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what's good, acceptable and perfect. Giving ourselves unto God. Do you owe God something? And I'm one opinion, but this pastor's opinion is what do I not owe God? We see it back in Exodus. As soon as God redeems them and saves them, He requires something from them, He requires them. To give him to him something that represents the price that he's paid. Christian, in the new covenant, the firstborn was slain for us. And, and I believe that according to the Apostle Paul and according to Jesus himself, we are required to give back in like manner that God gave to us. And the Bible says, for God so what loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I believe the the love with which God demonstrated to the world by sending His Son to die on the cross, to bleed for us, is the same love debt by which we owe back unto Him. And this is why I believe Jesus gave us the greatest commandment. And y'all help me out, church. The greatest commandment was what? Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And the second is like it? That's right. That's right. God purchased us with His love by His Son, a sacrifice of His Son. We, in turn, love God and by the sacrifice of our lives, Romans 12, 1. We pursue being a slave unto God and his good mastership over us. The second thing God does, and I'll close with this. Do we owe God something? Y'all, I say we do. I say we do. We cannot repay the, uh, the, the debt that God gave to us. We cannot. Um, we were talking last night around my house. And I asked my family this question. Do we owe God something? 
And one of my sons said, yeah, but we could never repay what we owe. So we can't really owe him something because there's no way we could pay it off. And I made the illustration back. I said, well, I said, that that is true. We cannot ever pay back. And we don't need to look at this like we're trying to pay God off for what he's done for us. And I don't want to imply that in any way. And this is why I'm glad my son said what he did. But I said, but... I said, if, if I owe the, the hospital $200,000 for emergency surgery, then that doesn't mean I don't need to try and pay them every month what I can. And when we see God paying our debt, a, a debt that is so insurmountable that we can't pay back, that doesn't mean we don't say, God, what can I do? To demonstrate my love and my appreciation for what you've done. Now you go back under Exodus 13.3. And I don't have it in order, Craig, I'm sorry. But the second thing he gives to them in Exodus 13 is is he calls them to do the Passover feast. and, And we read it earlier. Year by year as a continual reminder. A continual reminder A continual reminder that God's great hand purchased them through the blood of the Lamb. And as they, by faith, put the blood on the door and marked themselves, we believe. This family, we eat the Lamb, we paint our door, we believe. Christian, the way you get entrance into the safety of the Lamb of God it's to say, Jesus Christ died on the cross. I believe. And I'm willing to come under and become a slave of God under his mastership. I'm going to change my ways and be a Christian. I'm going to identify at the cross. I'm going to come to the Lord's Supper and say, this cup, this cup was shed for me. This body, this body was broken for me. I, I'm in. And it's not just walking through church. It's loving your God and devoting yourself and giving yourself to him. And so I read to you what I read earlier this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13 says this. Therefore, remember, I'm going to go to verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope and you were without God. Remember. And then remember, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you've been brought near. Praise the Lord. The Spirit of God moved upon a guy named John. And when Jesus was walking toward him to be baptized, John the Baptist made a great proclamation. John the Baptist, one who had done this feast every year in remembrance. We do Passover. We do Passover. We do Passover. He comes and he looks down the hill. What does he say, church? When Jesus walks down the hill, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, I'm in. Mark my house. I am in. That's the Lamb of God. I know it. The Apostle Peter calls him specifically the Pascal Lamb, the Passover Lamb in his epistle. Praise the Lord. 
Y'all, this, I, this one hit me this week. Let me give you a bit of application as you walk out the door. Do you owe God something? Do you owe God something? I, I may not have changed your mind, but my mind is set. I owe God something. What do I not owe God? Christian, as you walk out these doors, don't forget that you owe God something. You know, uh, one of the problems, I think, with a lot of Christians is we, we expect God to, to, to fill all of our wants and, and are happy and, and put butterflies in our stomach and, and just make us happy. And we forget now, we owe God something. Church is not, not coming to church is not just for us. We come to give God worship and praise. And y'all, we, we get up early and we stay up late serving our God. And we give money and blood and effort and time to serving the kingdom of God because we owe Him something. He's not just here to... Please, all of our whims. He's put us here for a purpose to serve in that last part of that picture, that kingdom part. That's not just for us to go sing on clouds for all eternity. That kingdom part is there is a kingdom to grow and a kingdom to work and people to reach and a gospel to preach and a church to 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 pour into. We owe God something. In fact, I'll argue we owe him our very best. Our first fruits. And when, when the Lord took the firstborn, it's because it was first. He didn't take the lastborn. He took the first. So Christian, an application of this, go give God something. A living sacrifice. Live that. Make decisions daily to honor and please and give yourself to God. Parent like Christian's parent. Grandparent like Christian's grandparent. Church member like Christian's church member. Speak like Christian's speak. Work like Christian's work. Get up early. Stay up late like Christian's do. Let's pray together, church. Lord, thank you for purchasing me. Thank you for purchasing The believers, God, those who love you, God, give us, stir a fire in our soul to give you back the love that we owe you, to give you the service we owe you. And Lord, not to coast along in this life, expecting that you make us happy in everything, but God, giving ourselves to your kingdom and the work you've called us to do. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.